0: We've got to stop talking about the women because the problem isn't women i bang my head on the desk when Jacinta Arden or Nicola Sturgeon stands down and suddenly you get a plethora of articles can women cope can they have it all and i just think nobody's saying that about the men and yet Jacinta Arden's predecessor did exactly the same thing he said you know what i'm out i've done enough i can't redo it anymore and nobody said oh well that's it all men all men can't cope with politics." we have to change the environment rather than asking women to fit in with something which no normal person would want to be involved in.
1: Representing Walthamstow, Stella Creasy is one of 225 women MPs currently in Parliament. That's the highest number of women MPs the House of Commons has ever had. I'm Liz Earle and this is the Liz Earle Wellbeing Show, the podcast helping all of us have a better second half. And I'm on a bit of a mission to find ways for all of us to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. And looking after ourselves physically and mentally very much includes showing up for legal and social change that will inevitably affect our mental health our stress levels and physical burdens. So today, in aid of International Women's Day, I'm going to have some very important conversations about how representation of women in Parliament has a tangible knock-on effect on how we're able to live our lives day to day, as well as about the reality of being a woman in Parliament today. Well, across this episode, we will hear from three women – all driving change in their own ways. First, Baroness Jenkin of Kennington. Anne co-founded Women to Win in 2005 to address the need for more female Conservative candidates and MPs. Then Stella Creasy, who's been the Labour MP for Walthamstow since 2010. And later on, we'll hear from Miriam Cates, Penistone and Stockbridge's Conservative MP since 2019. Well, Anne, a very, very warm welcome. I'm delighted that you are here with me because you founded Women to Win with Theresa May back in 2005. So can we wind the clock back a little bit and ask you really what was the driving force behind that?
3: Yes, well, thank you, Liz, for for inviting me on today and I'm uh, delighted to be here. Uh, Yes, I mean, I have worked for uh, In and Out of Politics uh, since about 1976 I stood for parliament myself. I come from a political family. But only quite late on did I realize how poor the Conservative Party was at both appealing to women, but at having more women as MPs. And slowly, one wakes up to these things. And by uh, 1997, when Theresa May was actually elected, we had 13 Conservative women MPs at the same time as Labour had 101. Wow. um, Because they had exactly so just uh, picture that for a moment. But they had, of course, introduced all women shortlists, because they prior to that were in as bad a position as us. Basically, I I think the word misogynistic is, is probably thrown around a bit too often, but they certainly didn't care very much about women. But the mechanism worked for them, they suddenly had this huge increase in what were then called Blair babes, and really, basically, we launched Women to Win in order to wake the Conservative Party up to the fact that our 9%, or flip it on its head and call it 91% males, yes. uh, male MPs, was not good enough. So Teresa and I, after the 2005 election, where we were still stuck at that 9%, had a conversation somewhere where we sort of bumped along together. Uh, We said, we've got to do something about this. We didn't know what something was going to be. That was in the summer of 2005. Actually, it was on the day of 7-7, the London bombing. So I remember the conversation quite clearly. Mm. And that turned out to be the launch of Women to Win, which we did in November that year, just two weeks before David Cameron became leader of the Conservative Party, And I think at that stage, we probably thought we were there to kind of rattle the cage, shout at the Conservative Party, make it realize this was an important agenda. And then David Cameron came along and said in his first speech, I want the Conservative Party to better reflect the country I seek to serve. So we had his support pretty much from the beginning. But even then, we didn't quite know what we were doing. We were sort of floundering around in the bushes a bit. But we have... uh, It's all become a bit clearer and we have improved the situation significantly since then.
1: You certainly have. And interesting you say that coming from a political family, your great-grandfather, Willoughby Dickinson, was the only MP with a perfect voting record on women's suffrage over 100 years ago now, and your grandmother was the only female Conservative elected in 1945. So presumably you grew up in an environment then that really understood and championed women's rights to participate in public life.
3: Yes, well, thank you for doing so much homework, Liz. <laughs> of I'm impressed. Of course. Um, yes, I mean, I, I, it's true that my granny and, you know, people say who are your role models and you probably have the same thing, but not many people are lucky enough to have their own grandmothers sort of growing up to be, as you say, she was the 33rd ever woman MP. And, you know, I remember her very well. She lived to a ripe old age. She was a very big part of my childhood. And she then actually came to the House of Lords in uh, 1963, I think very soon after Life peerages were introduced. she was one of the very first women peers, so she was a significant figure in my growing up and but but I don't think i mean i I think it was a coincidence, but probably not <laughs> that I got involved in in women's issues but it doesn't matter really where it came from. what matters is that I got the bit between my teeth and like the terrier, I wasn't going to let it go, so I've been rattling that cage ever since, and we've made progress, but you know I'm very grateful to granny for for leading the way on these matters, and indeed to my great-grandfather Willoughby, who himself got involved in the whole suffrage issue. And, And that's because his sister was a doctor, a very early doctor, obviously, and he couldn't understand how... I mean, he thought it was grossly unfair, which of course it was, that he had the vote and she didn't, and so he again, grab that bone and like the terrier, he didn't let it go.
1: It's amazing, isn't it, when we think back to not that long ago, when women weren't even allowed to vote, let alone become MPs. Where are we now in terms of representation of women in Parliament? How do you think we're doing and what more needs to be done?
3: Well, that's a good question. So across the board, we're at about 33%, which is a significant increase. And I suppose the debate is really around, you know, do we use a mechanism to kind of jump as fast as we can or is it better to be incremental and not to antagonize too many people on the way and i've always taken the view that incremental was better unless we went backwards now there are as i say the labor party still use the mechanism of all women shortlists and they have got to 51% on that basis however Unlike the Conservatives, they've never had a woman leader or a woman prime minister. And we've had three. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Uh, all, all on merit. And actually, I mean, on that, the, of the eight um, finalists in the Conservative Party uh, election for leader over the summer, I think four of them were women. And given that we've only got uh, 24% of our parliamentary party are women... I was extremely pleased that n- none yes. of those had what you might call imposter syndrome, which we usually all struggle from in some shape or form. So uh, of what we have got, I think, is, um, is bold and brave women. But of course, getting them to stand in the first place is the first challenge on the journey into public life.
1: So then more broadly, you know, why is the representation of women in Parliament so important? Why do we need to be, you know, potentially 50-50 in the House?
3: Well, I, I think that they technically, they say that 35% is the sort of tipping point. And, and for lots of reasons, it's, it's obviously not for everybody. But, you know, people sometimes say to me, well, OK, you've got to your 25%. Why does it matter? And instantly, I, I mean, being a woman in a man's world, I count every single room I'm in. I go in, I say, OK, five women 45 men that's the norm for me but no man will ever do the the alternative the the equivalent because Gosh. that's the norm for them yeah, yeah. but i mean it matters in the end because women's life experiences are different to men's they are not superior they are not inferior but they are different yes. and i think it's important to have that difference reflected both around the cabinet table in whitehall in westminster and more generally across most sectors because we're not the only one that doesn't do well enough in this area
1: I first met you not that long ago and I remember you were talking about how you were encouraging women into parliament and you I think you told me the story of how you just you sat next to a woman at the theater and, and you ended up you know talking to her and then she became an elected mp because of that conversation you know how do you do it do you do you go out literally looking for suitable candidates and then say right come on you know you can do this
3: <laughs> well if everybody else did what i do which is to kind of sniff them out uh, yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't have the problem, but uh, traditionally, I mean, women wait to be asked. So, if you are a woman, and, and this is different in the Labour Party because they're fishing in different ponds, but but let us say that you are a professional woman on track to, if you work hard, do a good job, let's say, make partner in a law firm or become, you know, head teacher or, or you know, be be a successful woman in your chosen field, and you shout at the telly. And you get all steamed up, but you don't really consider yourself to be political. And you look down one road and you see, okay, if I work hard, do a good job, I will achieve. It will be challenging, but I will get to the point I'm aiming to get to. And you look down the other route and it is fraught with risk and challenge. So you think, well, even if I were to get selected for a seed, even if I were to get elected, I might or I might not get some sort of preferment. I might thrive in this very challenging environment, which we can come back to, and my family might thrive or they might not, and then I might lose my seat. And and so it is it is full of risk, and risk, women don't like risk. And I'm making a generalisation, of course, but men are attracted to risk, which is why so many of them, in some ways, end up by getting into trouble, because – and I just go back to the issue about the porn and the man looking at tractors – Yes. I mean, what what woman would do that? We don't no, like risk. You're Whereas not going to risk
1: it, are you? I no. mean, really? So, come on. So
3: I go go back to the theatre story because it is, um, yeah, uh, it, it's one of uh, quite a lot. But I I was at the theatre with a last minute invitation from a from a you know parent of a school friend of my children. Uh, in the in the interval, he said, "Oh, here we bumped into his friends." He said, "Gillian would make a great MP." And uh, after a couple of minutes, I said, come and have a chat with me next week. And um, she is now, ten, less than 10 years later, Secretary of State for Education. Wow, just for that chance did,
1: conversation. That's that amazing. conversation. Amazing. Now,
3: she had never, like most women, considered it as an option. She had, and I think most you know, many people now know this story, which is very familiar to me, because I've now, you know, I tucked her under my arm immediately, and we and we approached it as a campaign once she said okay i'm up for this and i you know i'd explained to her the 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 maze that you have to navigate in order to get selected then elected and start your journey so we we kind of approached it like an apprenticeship which she having left school at 16 and become an apprentice in a car factory um because there was nowhere in her home town to do a levels then or i think now even today But so she had gone down the apprenticeship route, had a 28-year career in business, had become extremely successful. She had done the Sloan Fellowship, which I think she was the only woman in her year. And I just caught her at this theatre trip at the right moment of her career, because she'd just done this London Business School course, and she was thinking about what to do next. So there was quite a lot of serendipity about it. But I also, having now been sniffing about in this world for so long, I I kind of, I've got quite a good feel for what it takes to be successful as a woman in politics. And mostly it's, of course, a lot of it is resilience, but a lot of it is about character. And it's hard to define what that means, because of course, in order to be an MP, you know, there are various, in order to get onto the candidates list, our system is slightly different from other political parties. But there are, you know, they're, they're looking for, you know, leadership qualities, intellectual capacity. Um, they've, they've got a list of criteria in order to get onto the candidates list. But I can usually smell what that character is. So she is not the only one, but she is probably the highest profile of the women that um, that I have encouraged and supported on that route into public life. But then what I would always say to to women is start the journey and see where it takes you because it might take you into a public appointment. It, it might take you into, as a counsellor, you know, to start serving your community at a mm. different level. And from that, you can see, well, do I love this? Do I love knocking on doors? Do I love talking to people? And so many women will say to me, oh, I'm not really political. And I'm like, yes, but you got your bus stop moved or you saved your child's playground. That Mm. makes you political. You are a campaigner. All the rest of it you can learn, but you have got that in your bones. And it's another difference between the sexes is that, from my experience, women are nearly always driven by a cause. Right. So they might have had cancer. They might have a disabled child. They might have – I mean, I met a girl a couple of weeks ago, and I said, what's your cause? And she said, I've got an autistic brother. They've got something that makes them start. Yeah. I mean, I remember talking to one one woman MP and I said, What was it what was your light bulb moment? And she said, I was on the top of the bus watching the London riots, and I thought, I've got to get involved in this. So I think I mean, I don't want to generalise too much, but that is often what makes women step up. Whereas a man on the whole Or just know at about seven that he's going to be a brilliant MP and and not be driven by (laughs) one of these causes, as you might say. How interesting. Um, but But then, of course, you know, even if they've got that cause, you have to have more to it. Because, of course, political life is once you actually get here, doesn't always enable you the time to just focus on what you actually came in to achieve in terms of campaigns.
1: Well, before we go, I have to say that I absolutely love your Twitter bio. You say that you're, quote, a supporter of women. And I think that's very clear from the chat that we've just had. But you also write that you'd, quote, like to laugh more. Oh, yes. And you know, I love the fact that your humour comes out. I mean, is, it, is that something that keeps you sane? Is that an important part of your own well-being?
3: Well, I think we all we all need to laugh more. We know laughter is the best medicine. And if you haven't done a podcast about laughter, I'm sure it'll be somewhere down the line, Liz. But um, I, I, I think, um, you know, life... I mean, it's not about laughing at jokes, really, is it? It's just there's nothing as good as a big old belly laugh, is there, that makes you feel yeah. good. And it's quite hard to do today because life seems so serious and, and challenging. Yes. And, um, and I like – I think I put likes a happy ending, and I I'm, you know I still stand by that too. But, um, no, I call myself a supporter of women rather than a feminist because although I'm not completely sure – I mean, I, I will you know die in the ditch for women – because I think we, we do, you know, women kind do have a very tough time. And, and, and you know, until you see it, you don't really see it. And of course, I, I'm immensely privileged and lucky, and I don't have many of the challenges that other women face today. But then I think it's all the more important for those of us who are in positions of privilege to step up and fight on behalf of those, whether it's suffering from domestic abuse or you know whatever it is whatever their challenges are I think we need to make the case on their behalf because it's very hard for them to have a voice for so many women to have a voice.
1: Well I'm extremely pleased that you have our back and our voice Baroness Anne Jenkin it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for your time today. Thank you. Okay stay right there I am chatting to Stella Creasy in just a moment.
2: luxury quality within reach go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order quince.com slash style why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made ByHeart a better formula for formula. Learn more at ByHeart.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
1: Well, Stella, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Very, very warm welcome. Delighted that you've joined us. Can we go back to your childhood? You know, were you always going to get into politics? Were you always going to speak up in the hope of bettering women's lives, which is you know, seemingly what you do so much of now? Oh, goodness.
0: No, I don't think it was always a given I'd get into politics. I was that child. And my mum and dad always say their worst regret is saying to me, well, what are you going to do about it? Because I would complain loudly that the world was unfair. And they bitterly regret that now because they actually live in the community that I represent. So I am their MP. Um, wow. I think I think it's that sense that the world could be a better place that I always had, coupled with a, an anger about injustice. I mean, I um, was very active as a child in... Various kind of campaign organisations and social movements, and indeed even for a while in in a a church, although it wasn't a particularly I don't know if you say big R religious church. It was more it was a very sort of socially Mm. active church, and so I was always acutely aware that there were things that needed to be sorted out, and that and that it was also possible to sort things out. So I mean, look, my mum was a, a head teacher of a residential school so I I grew up with kids who had really so children with what we call emotional behavioral difficulties lots of children with special needs children who had really difficult family lives and my mum was absolutely adamant and throughout her career that you know these things could be resolved and these children deserved our help and attention because they had futures worth fighting for so I grew up in a very kind of you don't just complain about things, you get on and do something about it. But but did I ever see politics as the place in which that happened? No, it wasn't until I was... Uh, in my late teens that I kind of had a light bulb moment where I thought, oh you know, this is something that can actually make a difference in a good way because if I'm honest I grew up thinking governments were terrible evil things that did bad things you had to fight. Yes, So yeah, uh, well, I mean, yeah, we're all absolutely. products of our generations aren't we?
1: Yeah Interesting that you talk about you know strong role models for women and mm. how important that is. You were elected from an all women shortlist yes. in 2010 and last year it was announced the Labour Party would drop all women shortlist to choose candidates for the general election what's your take on that what's what's your view on these shortlists in principle
0: well i mean it, it, the reason they, they they it's not they've dropped them it's that legally they can't use them anymore because in theory we are at parity right I, i've been always incredibly proud to be selected on on shortlist because if you'd met the women who were standing against me you'd think goodness me I mean, they were um, incredible women. Uh, an all in short, this isn't about the women standing. It's about the people making the decision mm. and shifting all those cultural expectations that, frankly, leadership is a white man of a certain age in a posh suit. So actually, to stand and to be selected against, there were 27 other women who were standing. They were all incredible, um, was, was, was an honour. Uh, and it wasn't anything to do with being a woman. It was just that that took away... Uh, an expectation that you weren't the norm to make sure that that was the norm for all of us. Am I delighted that we've got to a point where the labor movement has a lot more women standing? Yes, but two caveats. One, I know that can, can go backwards as well as forwards, because, it, you know, and it's not just about being a woman. So one of the things I've done in the last year is to fundraise to support mums to stand um, as Labour candidates, because It's not just about having women in politics. It's about the diversity of women. And if you look at the parliament, the vast majority of women in there who are mothers have children who are much older because women tend to go into politics later in life or they don't have children at all, because the way in which our politics operates is very difficult to balance with having a family. That seems completely insane to me. And we have managed to fund 55 brilliant women who come from all walks of life, you know, a third of them are from black and ethnic minority backgrounds, 20% of them have children with special educational needs, 25% of them are single parents, 25% of them are from the lowest social income. But they've all got children and they've got a lot of them have got very young children and they had been put off politics because it doesn't work for having a family. So we miss out on all that talent. Mm. And that's the second point in all of this, which is it's not enough just to have women in the room, it's what happens when they get there. And our parliament and our way of working is resolutely still based around the default, which is a white man of a certain age with independent means. So, you know, I get told we have family-friendly hours because our votes are at seven o'clock in the evening on a Tuesday and a Wednesday. And anybody who's got toddlers and does oh, bedtime will please. just have a hollow, hollow laugh yeah. at
1: that point. <laughs> yeah. You <know>? yeah,
0: really. <laughs> um, you know, mm-hmm. So there is a long way to go to make sure that our politics can include everybody. But the fact that all women shortlists are now something that legally the Labour Party can't do at the moment, because... Because We've you've got, got them, you, yeah. I celebrate, yeah. yeah yeah, yeah, it's just the start of a journey, it's not the end of a journey, it's not the only thing you can do to open up politics, but it's a it's been an incredibly powerful tool, and I am absolutely celebrating having been selected on one because I don't think anybody can suggest that it hasn't brought in new ideas, new talent, new perspectives to politics, and frankly you know, it's the point of when we we start selecting lots of really mediocre women that will have proper equality because <laughs> cause it's still on whole, on the whole, you know, we're still agonisingly uh, slow at getting women into politics. Yeah. Like the idea, I mean, it's what I call the Piers Morgan fallacy because Piers Morgan once complained that, you know, we had a, a woman as a head of the monarchy and we had a a woman running the police and a woman running the fire service, you know, there were women everywhere. And you were like, that's three. Um,
1: <laughs> Out of yeah, 30,000 or we're 50, something. Yeah, we're
0: right. 51% of the population. Mm-hmm. You know? And we're still only at 30% women in politics, it, it only moves every couple of years, I have been trying to get the parliamentary authorities, you know, we don't have maternity cover, for example, we don't actually have a way of making sure that if you are going to have a family you can balance it so it, of course it deters women because women on the whole are the ones who are still having to manage these issues yes. let alone my male colleagues who then don't get to see their kids because of the way in which it works.
1: Well I, I'd, I'd like to come on to that because you were the first MP to appoint a, a sort of a locum MP Kizzy Gardner to manage your constituency yes. work while you were on maternity leave so How have issues around maternity rights made life for women MPs particularly difficult? And, you know, how are you and others now looking to change that?
0: Well, because because we don't have any, because we don't have an employment contract. So the situation I've been in twice now is actually illegal. I was, I'd just given birth to my son. And it was just at the time that the crisis in Afghanistan took place. I had a lot of constituents affected by it. So I was still with the after effects of all the drugs when you've given birth, on the phone to the ministers trying to help people who face life or death situations because there was nobody to cover my role. There isn't cover for an MP. They will give you extra staff, but anybody who's done maternity cover knows that what you need is somebody who can do all of your job so that you can have a proper break. And yes. it's actually illegal in this country to work in the first two weeks after you've given birth, but you know that didn't seem to bother the place that makes the laws. Mm. In fact, the only piece of work that Parliament has done on maternity provision in the last couple of years is to spend six months having a debate to confirm that they didn't want mums in the chamber if they were going to breastfeed their children. Uh, now I took my son into the chamber not because I particularly wanted to to, to breastfeed but because I was, he was, I was feeding him and there was no maternity cover and I didn't want to let my constituents down and not give them a voice. So you're in this impossible position yes. and the risk is that people will say don't elect women because they might have babies. My male colleagues, who every so often take a baby through the lobby with them, get lauded on social media as wonderful, progressive, modern dads. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I get seven tons of abuse for acting as if I'm the first woman who's ever had a baby to say, maybe if we make the laws on maternity discrimination, we shouldn't discriminate ourselves because we're not sending a great message to employers about how they should treat our constituents if we don't stand up for these laws ourselves. And Theo Clark, who's a Conservative MP, so this is not a partisan point, has just faced the same situation having her own little baby things aren't moving anytime soon on that that's one of the reasons why I wanted to support a lot more mums to get into politics so that there was a group of us Mm -hmm. and they couldn't ignore us anymore or say it was just me me being difficult raising questions about it because that's also what you get as a woman you ever speak up on something of course you're difficult um, and self-interested if you're a man then you're using your experience to inform the debate you know it's it's a work in progress, shall we
1: say. <laughs> Do you know, I mean, you unfortunately know full well the vitriol that can be aimed at women in politics. And, you know, I can only imagine that the thought of that is putting so many women off, you know, when they might be exactly the sort of women we want making decisions for our future. Well-rounded life experience with young families, all of that. How can we... A make that better, but also I mean, how do you cope with it you You do something that I don't think I could ever do. I just don't have that Teflon coating on me
0: look, look neither do I. I'm a normal human being when people write horrible things about about me online and I see it, of course, it hurts I'm not weird i mean i I think of um, Facebook as being like the burn book in Mean Girls because people often tag me in oh, this stuff. Oh, gosh. Uh, and then I think of Twitter as just being like a toilet wall where somebody's randomly written something and you accidentally happen to read it. <laughs> oh, um, it. But I also think the yeah. something that's really important about all of this is we, and this might sound counterintuitive, we've got to stop talking about the women because the problem isn't women. I bang my head on the desk when Jacinta Arden or Nicola Sturgeon stands down and suddenly you get a plethora of articles. Can women cope? Can they have it all? Mm. And I just think... Nobody's saying that about the men. And yet Jacinta Arden's predecessor did exactly the same thing. He said, you know what? I'm out. I've done enough. I can't redo it anymore. And nobody said, oh, well, that's it. All men. All men can't cope with politics. We have to change the environment rather than asking women to fit in with something which no normal person would want to be involved in. Unless you are very strange, you don't really like getting a lot of abuse for trying to do something Mm. good in the world. And, you know, most of my colleagues, that's why they're there. Absolutely. Some of them, maybe not, but most of them, like most of the people you probably work with, they want to try and do something to make an impact.
2: Yeah.
0: And rather than saying to women, well, you know, you've got to have a Teflon skin or you've got to tough it out. You know, you've got to leave your family behind if you want to be um, ambitious. Let's change the the system that we're going into. I I once had a wonderful experience where somebody said to me, it's brilliant. We're doing all this training to give women the confidence to stand for leadership within this organisation. And I said, that's, that's great. That's brilliant. Everybody loves a good mentor. What are you doing to challenge the bias of the people making the decisions about what leadership looks like and how things should work to make sure that they're not writing off all those brilliant women? Mm. And there was a kind of blank face moment because it hadn't occurred to people that maybe the problem isn't the women coming forward, but the environment you're asking them to work yeah. in.
1: So what are some of the barriers then for more women entering parliament as you see it? You know, I mean, is it things like financial privilege or background or connections? You know, what what are the barriers? What is stopping women from coming forward?
0: Oh, it's, it's all of those and more. It is that... Um, I mean, it, it, it's a common joke that me and my, my staff have now that if there's an issue we want to make progress on, what we need to do is find a, a white man of a certain age to agree with us. And then suddenly everybody goes from thinking that I'm this mad, woke, rabid socialist loony to, um, oh, she's she's got a point there. There's, there's a point there and he's made it. So that's acceptable financial difference of course makes a difference like one of the reasons with the the mother red campaign we've been funding mums to stand for selection because if you've got to go and fight to be chosen that means going campaigning a lot means going to lots of meetings going and meeting people if you've got childcare costs of course that is a barrier to doing it yeah and it's a barrier that somebody who doesn't have you know that there are lots of young men who can spend a lot of their weekends going and campaigning around the country that people with kids just you just can't do and or if you take the kids they have a really rotten time and then you feel doubly guilty about it so that's kind of getting selected let alone all those unconscious bias I'll give you a great example of this you know I've been keeping a note of all the comments people make to me about being a mum whilst in parliament so the colleague who said to me oh you're carrying a really big bag is that because you've got all your baby equipment in it and I was like no it's because I've got all the papers (laughs) for all the boring meetings we have to go to Um, I had collected my children from the nursery um, in a in a double buggy and anybody's ever had one of those things knows they're a bit like a tank and we were going along one of the corridors and another male colleague said to me oh look at you taking up all that space with all these kids you're gonna have more of them (gasps) take up even more space and I just was like nobody would say that to a man or denigrate a woman for being uh, a, a mother and yet we do it as a sort of standard he thought he was being funny, complaining about the amount of space I take up. So all those unconscious biases are everywhere.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, unconscious bias and thinking about the everyday lives, you know, of the women you represent. Why now is making misogyny a police issue important to you? Does it stem from that?
0: Look, absolutely. And that's something I'm really proud that we finally made some progress on. Because when we first started looking at the Sue Fish, she's a phenomenal woman who was the chief constable of Nottinghamshire, first started this approach of getting the police to recognise where misogyny was driving crimes against women and record it as such. And so give women the confidence that actually they came forward to report somebody uh, abusing them and attacking them and assaulting them, it would be taken seriously. And that's helped them with detecting the people behind it. Now 12 police forces across the country are doing it. Um, I was originally told that I was I was going to criminalise catcalling, to which, of course, the answer is, well, it's already an offence to harass somebody on the street. Mm. So we're not talking about any new offences, but we are talking about recognising that the people who follow women down the street mm-hmm. often don't stop there. Not everybody um, who does that ends up being a rapist, but a lot of rapists, a lot of sexual predators, start with these kind of behaviours. So taking it seriously is part of detecting and preventing these crimes. And you know, letting women live their lives in freedom. This week in Parliament, we had the Public Harassment Bill, which uh, uh, Greg Clark, he's a great Conservative MP, and he's picked it up, and that's fantastic. And he's managed to get the government to agree to it, which will apply an additional sentence if somebody is found to have targeted somebody on the basis of their sex or their presumed sex. The challenge we've got right now is that the way the legislation is written is... Somebody can say, "Well, I I thought I was complimenting her. I thought I was yes. trying to seduce this woman by 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 slapping her bottom." And the law would say that that is a reasonable defence. Right. What we want to do is make sure that that it can't just be down to a, to a to a perpetrator saying that. That actually, you know, if anybody else ought to know that that is not an acceptable way to approach somebody of the opposite sex, it's a form of harassment. Then it should be considered harassment. So, as ever with women, nothing is ever straightforward. But it matters because thousands of women every single day face abuse, harassment, intimidation. And we've spent generations teaching women how to avoid it. You know, take your keys in your hand on the way home. Don't have your headphones in. Don't drink too much so you're not aware of your circumstances. Be mindful of what you're wearing rather than challenging the perpetrators and saying, you know what, most men know that this is not acceptable. So if you don't know it's acceptable, it's a problem
1: and we need to deal with you because it's a criminal offense. So interesting and I think I'd like to finish on a on a good note here and we've talked a bit <laughs> about some of the stresses and and the perils of of your work on the flip side what do you see as some of the most compelling reasons the positive reasons why women should get into politics at any level in the first place.
0: Oh because it's a it's a privilege to be able to represent the community that you care about and champion the causes that make a difference. And I'm even more convinced of that. I've been doing this job for 13 years now. And whether it's been taking on the legal loan sharks and putting Wonga out of business, or getting abortion rights for women in Northern Ireland, or getting misogyny seen as a hate crime, or even the work I'm doing now to rebuild our relationship with the European Union, it is possible to make a difference. It is possible for change to happen. What I want to do is make sure all those brilliant, talented women out there who have so much to give our society are not just not silenced, but actually activated. So sometimes you stick your head above the parapet and you take those brickbats because you know all the good things to come. And I look at some of the brilliant women coming forward now, and I'm hugely hopeful about the future of our country. I just know sometimes it's frankly bloody hard work.
1: (laughs) I think it's going to seem very daunting to some women listening to this, thinking, how on earth do I start? I'm thinking about it. I'm tempted. What is out there in terms of support and resources?
0: There's lots of brilliant organisations who help people get involved in politics in all sorts of different ways. So, for example, Pregnant Then Screwed or Mother Pucker or Ashley James or the Fawcett Society. You know, Follow the people who you're interested in. You don't have to agree with them all the time to be able to look at how they're taking steps to be heard and how they're supporting other people to be heard and having that debate to become part of it yourself. We have to break the myth that sometimes that you have to get it right the first time in order to be heard. And actually, all those organisations are doing a really brilliant job of showing the difference that bringing those women's voices into politics makes.
1: Stella Creasy, MP, thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely inspirational and great to chat. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Well, stay tuned because in just a moment, we're going to be chatting with Miriam Cates to hear about her journey into politics. Miriam, a really warm welcome. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you for creating a little bit of time and I know what is an absolutely crazy schedule. So thank you. That's okay. Lovely to be here. Well, let's go back to the beginning for you. What was your experience around politics? Did you grow up in a political household? What was your childhood like?
4: Well, my parents weren't particularly political, not party political anyway. They were aware of current affairs and we used to talk about it and they would buy and read newspapers. But nobody in my family was really party political. But I remember when I was about 11, I was given an old radio that only tuned to wave, and your younger listeners will not know what that is but I could only <laughs> get Radio 4 um, and so I started listening to Radio 4 and my, my teenage rebellion was listening to the Westminster Hour when I should have <laughs> turned my lights up which sounds incredibly geeky um, yeah. but I was just really fascinated by Parliament, by politics, by debate mm. in seeing how ideas make it into policy and how people defended them. Um, just interested in the process really, I probably bored my friend stupid but I was I, wasn't, I, I wouldn't have said I uh, had a plan to get into politics. As I said, I, I didn't know anybody really who was in a political party, so I wouldn't have known how to get involved as it was, but I was just very interested in it in, in general. But yes, yeah, so it's a bit of a surprise in a way that I've ended up as an MP. Well, I'd love to hear about that journey because you you were a working mum. You
1: met Baroness Jenkin, who we spoke to earlier, and she encouraged you and supported you to, to become an MP. What, what, was, what were those middle years like through work and motherhood? Tell us about your background there. Yes,
4: yeah, so I, I went to university. I trained to be a teacher. I met my husband, had three kids, Um, So I was teaching science in a secondary school and then I took a career break, I think after my second child was born, uh, because it had just, I mean, I love teaching, but it had just become too much balancing it with small kids. I wanted to give them more of my time. And so I took a career break for a bit and helped my husband and his business. And while the kids were small, I got really involved in the village where we live, in playgroups, in the parent-teacher association. Um, And I became a parish councillor, an independent parish councillor. And I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed uh, having local campaigns, working with people locally, making a difference in the local community. And so I thought I'd quite like to stand for city council, uh, to have you know more influence and do more of the same uh, but I realized that you couldn't go any further as an independent and you had to join a political party so I considered joining Labour in the Lib Dems but in the end I was asked by a family friend actually to stand for the Conservatives in an unwinnable ward in Sheffield and my first thought was who'd be a Tory in Sheffield it's a, it's a <laughs> Labour stronghold you know I grew up there I remember the rhymes against Thatcher in my primary school playground Uh, But obviously things started to change um, following Brexit referendum. So I thought, you know what, I'll do it. And I did it. I really enjoyed the campaigning. I didn't win, obviously, but I thought I would like to explore it a bit more. And my husband encouraged me to go along to Conservative Party Conference, which is Mm. far more exciting than it sounds, in uh, 2018. (laughs) And I only went for 24 hours. And I think it's the first time I'd left the kids, all of them anyway, And I bumped into Baroness Jenkin, as you said, and she is absolutely my political hero, absolutely incredible woman, amazing at encouraging other women to get into politics. And she Mm. said to me, I think I spoke in a couple of fringe debates, and she said to me, you need to get on the list. And I thought, I don't know what this list is. And it transpires that if you would like to be a Conservative MP, you have to kind of get onto this list of approved candidates in order to be able to stand for election, So I didn't really think much more about this, apart from speaking to a couple of others at the conference who said, you know, it can take 10 years to be able to to, 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 um, get to the point where you can stand for a winnable seat but I'm not entirely sure how but three weeks later I had been selected as the parliamentary candidate for Pennyson and Saltage my home seat and I was just incredibly fortunate that my home seat came up for selection at the you know at that time somebody obviously um, yeah. you know put my name forward and I went through the selection process and everything but you know and a year later I was an MP so it was quite a short journey but um, Baroness Jenkins has been absolutely central to that and her advice and encouragement all the way through it was absolutely brilliant and I couldn't have done it without her at all do you know, that's so encouraging.
1: It's lovely to hear about, you know, older female mentors, but I'm really struck by the fact that you didn't actually know which party to choose, <laughs> you know, and that actually your point was to go into politics to make a difference, to represent your local community. You, you went in with that hat on rather than so often we hear about people, you know, wanting to bang a very political drum. Mm. I'm getting the sense that you are kind of in it because you want to represent the, the, your wider community and bring everything that you value and that you cherish and hold dear to that almost I mean not quite regardless of the party I mm. mean I'm not going to put words into your mouth there but that you know that wasn't the driving factor which is so interesting
4: Yes that's right I think my goal to begin with was that I could see the potential for change and influence for somebody who you know enjoyed uh, working with their local community who was passionate about their local community who wanted to stand up for the local community but I think Part of it was that I'd never really studied what the different parties stood for, or their philosophies. And I I would say, you know, several years, four, five years on now from joining the party, that I am a conservative. I've always been conservative. I just didn't know what the conservative party stands for. And probably uh, by luck, I've ended up in the right place. So the the politics of it is very important to me now. But uh, I absolutely agree. A lot of women do enter public life. Um, because of a desire to bring change. And actually, a lot of the women who write to me about the issues that I'm involved in often say you know, I vote Labour, I vote Lib Dem, but thank you for working on this issue. Mm -hmm. So I think there is something about the issues that women stand up for that that really cross the political divide or even perhaps rise above the political divide. And I think that's really
1: important. Well, and that's possibly one reason why we need more women in Parliament to, Mm. (laughs) to actually stand up for those changes. And I guess that leads me on to some of the things that you have been standing up for, which is potentially cross-party or should be and yet you do get a lot of heckling. I've seen video clips of you being you know really quite uh, well I mean if somebody spoke to me like that to my face I I would be you know very shocked. How do you cope with that? It just seems the House of Commons can be such an aggressive male-dominated place. How do you as a woman you know often standing up looking quite isolated how do you cope with that? I mean do you need to be really hard as nails I'm not sure that I'd be up for that um well I used to teach teenagers so
4: I'm used <laughs> to <get laughs> a bit of you know when you've got 30 15 year olds and 30 Bunsen burners you know you have to kind of get used to that but no I mean no I, I joke I mean yeah it isn't it isn't pleasant yes you do have to be thick-skinned and you do have to be able to be sure of what you're doing and confident that you're you know that you're doing what you think is right regardless of other people's reactions. And I think for that reason a lot of women are put off because women do I think tend to enjoy conflict less than men. They they try to seek consensus rather than division. And you know, most women wouldn't naturally want to walk into a packed room and stand up and say something really controversial that they know other people will disagree with. And you know, and I I completely understand that. And I do think the politics isn't for everybody, male or female, because of that. Uh, You have to have a certain combative side to you and to be quite thick skinned in order to to be able to put yourself in that position. Um, so, yes, it it can be unpleasant. And I think the first time I stood up and said something that the opposition really didn't like and started shouting over me, it was quite shocking. And I did feel intimidated. Uh, It wasn't like kids talking over you in the classroom. You know, it's very different Mm. to that. But I suppose since then I've been prepared for it and I've understood the kinds of things that do... I hate the word trigger, but you know what I mean? They do yeah. trigger mm-hmm. other people. Um, and my colleagues, as in, you know, my colleagues on the conservative benches have been incredibly supportive. Uh, and that makes a huge difference to me because it's one thing when the opposition don't like what you say, but you want to be able to rely on your own friends and colleagues to stand up yeah. for you. And I think for people like Rosie Duffield uh, and Joanna Cherry, who you know, I work with closely on some issues, um, who are on the other benches, they don't experience that support. And I think they are much mm. braver than me and in a much more vulnerable position because of it. Uh, so I think for me, as long as you know, you know, you know, you've got your friends behind you, then I think you can, you, you can be brave, but it's very different when, when you have not
1: Well, you say that, but you deleted your Twitter account because you got just so much abuse. And, you know, I know as a woman on Twitter, actually, that I have to be very measured and I'm not, you know, I don't put myself out there because I simply don't want to get rocks thrown mm. at me. What do you see as the issue here? You know, are are high-profile women just easier to attack? Are we just easier targets? And again, you know, do you think that was the right move for you to delete Twitter? Did did you do that just because you simply couldn't cope with it?
4: Um, Well, I just got so much abuse on Twitter over the general election campaign that it became a security risk, really. And also, although I wasn't, in the end, managing that Twitter account, my staff had to look through it all. And I just... I just didn't see the point of being on it. I couldn't Mm -hmm. see any positive benefit. A lot of my constituents aren't on it. They don't go on Twitter for their information. It is an echo chamber, really, for for Westminster and journalists and campaigners. So I I couldn't see any benefits... And there was an awful lot of harm. Um, And I just, I don't like Twitter fundamentally because I don't think human beings were created to communicate in 250 (laughs) characters or whatever it is. And you lose so much nuance and so much understanding. And, you know, when you're having a difficult conversation with someone, you constantly interject with, oh, but I do understand what you're saying. Or yes, I do understand, but, but, you know, I just feel differently or I completely support your right to say that. You know, you put all these things in to mitigate the conflict Mm -hmm. and to maintain the relationship relationship but no one does that on twitter because there isn't the space because you can't and so you get this exactly and so you get this black and white um, very condensed arguments that don't reflect the complexity of a debate and it becomes really really nasty and now i can see the usefulness of twitter for getting a message out there for publishing things for speaking to journalists you know and i think where i am a minister or a cabinet minister i think there's a huge value in it just from a kind of broadcast point of view. But fundamentally, I think it encourages human beings to uh, communicate in a very inhumane way. uh, And I suppose I'd just rather it didn't exist. Well, let's end on a positive note.
1: It is International Women's Day that we're celebrating here. How would you encourage more women listening to this, who've listened to the whole podcast and heard about different women's experiences of getting into politics? What would you say to somebody out there who's thinking, actually, do you know what? I do think that perhaps I might be able to do some good and and be a voice for change in my local community.
4: What, w- what would you say to them? Well, I would say join a political party because you can't get anywhere in politics without joining a political party. And you're also not going to find a political party whose views you completely agree with. You know, that just doesn't exist. There are only two, three, four main political parties in this country. Uh, you're going to have to pick one. But actually, being a party member, going along campaigning with a political party, going to their meetings, voting for candidates, gives you great experience, but also a real level of influence to influence national debate, to influence choice of candidates. And that is the place to start. And, you know, obviously, as I've said to you, I'm very sure now that I made the right choice in joining the Conservative Party. But I've got friends in all parties and people join all different parties for great reasons. So I think pick a political party, join in and just get to know people and get experience that way. You know, my journey was very unusual in its length because just, you know, by chance, I happened to be in the right place at the right time, really. But from what I can tell from other people's experience, the most important thing is to join a party and get to know people Uh, and go through that way now obviously there's plenty of ways of giving back to society and having influence without joining a political party and by doing other things but if you do want to make it in politics you've just got to make that jump
1: well I'm so grateful for your time Miriam thank you very much indeed for being with us we wish you extremely well as we do Stella and Anne it's been a fascinating conversation thank you Well, Baroness Anne Jenkin, Miriam Cates and Stella Creasy MPs, there thank you so much for all your time and of course for all the work that you do on our behalf. And this was the second of two International Women's Day special episodes. Last week we heard from Marcia Kilgore, a serial beauty industry entrepreneur, and Anna Brightman, co-founder of the skincare brand UpCircle, about leadership and about the systems that need to be in place to better support working women as we age. They are both brilliant disruptors by the way, so do listen back to that episode if you have already and i very much appreciate your thoughts on all our previous episodes lucy has been in touch after listening to the episode all about medical cannabis and she says so very interesting i use cbd oil alongside my hrt and have found it to be quote the icing on the cake in terms of managing my menopause symptoms and making me feel so much better it's a wonderful product and i'm so glad i took the plunge and started using it great to hear the science and the info backing it up Great. Thank you very much for your comment and your feedback. And if you want to get in touch, I am at Me and also at Liz Earle Wellbeing on social media. And my team and I always love reading your reviews on whatever podcast platform you like listening to me on. And of course, if you prefer to listen to your podcast ad-free, you can subscribe to the show now on Apple Podcasts for a very small monthly fee. And you get early access to episodes too, like next week's when I shall have a very energetic, sparkly treat of a guest for you. I shall say no more. Until then, go well. Bye-bye. The Liz well Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Liz Earle, and is produced by Nushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith.
2: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,